My friend Doris works as a tour guide in New York, in Philadelphia, and in Washington, D.C., and she visited me last weekend to do some exploring in New England to see if she would like to expand her tour guiding here. She went to Boston on Friday, and we both went to Salem on Saturday, and on Sunday morning, we drove down to Plymouth. I had never been before, odd as that may sound. The Church of the Pilgrims is the oldest congregation from colonial America, and its current church building sits at the top of the hill on Leiden Street, the first street in America. The Church of the Pilgrims is now a Unitarian Universalist church. My friend and seminary classmate, Art Lavoie, serves as its current minister. Behind Behind the Church of the Pilgrims is Colonial America's oldest white cemetery with the graves of the descendants from the Mayflower. Mere blocks from the church is the famous Plymouth Rock, placed there many years afterward as to commemorate the Mayflower's landing. Nearby stands a stately statue of Chief Massasoit of the Wampanoag tribe, the first native peoples to encounter the English there. The center of Plymouth, Massachusetts, tells the story that we all grew up with, the story of how the brave English pilgrims crossed the Atlantic Ocean to form a free Christian nation in the wilderness. This is the story that we conjure up each Thanksgiving. This is the story that gives white nationalists and fundamentalist Christians their certainty that America was founded as a white Christian nation. This story has power, and it is not the only story of the founding of our nation. After a sentimental stroll through Plymouth Center, Doris and I drove a few more miles south to the Living History Museum Plymouth Plantation, founded in 1947 to tell the story of the settling of colonial America. After a short video in the Visitor Center, we were directed outside, not to the reconstructed English village huddled next to its fort along a single dirt street, but to a reconstructed Wampanoag village in a clearing of trees, only added in 1973. Here, Native American reenactors were calmly working at traditional crafts, A man was making a dugout canoe by tending a small fire in a log. He told us it would take about seven days or so to to complete the canoe. A woman was sewing buckskin clothing. Another woman was cooking over a fire in the impressive winter lodge. Each talked about what it was like to live near humans from far away who have very strange barbaric practices. These reenactors told us how the English had cut down all of the big trees, every last one of them, how they went everywhere with their guns and their spears, how they were happy to trade for food and clothing, but were unhappy to share any of their technology with the Wampanoag. And these natives said, our English neighbors are so very, very noisy. 
to the Wampanoag, the English were greedy, sickly, frightened, and foolish. The English did not understand the land that they lived on, and they certainly did not understand the sacred beliefs of the people already living there. The vast majority of people living in colonial America were not Christians. They were American Indians, practicing a variety of related beliefs. They were attuned to the seasons and cycles of nature. They were respectful of the animals and the birds and the fish. They knew times of hardship, hunger, and war. And they knew times of bounty, satisfaction, and peace. Their 70% of the Wapanoag tribe had been killed off by European diseases in the three years before the Mayflower landed. They were beginning to get on their feet again when the English arrived. As one young Wapanoag man in the reconstructed Indian village said, we have been through a lot, but we are still here. The other religious groups that rarely make it into the story of the founding of America are Jews and Muslims, but both were present in colonial America, and both are conveniently forgotten in our whitewashed Thanksgiving myth. The presence of Muslims in colonial America is affirmed in documents dated to more than a century before the religious liberty became the law of the land, as in a Virginia statute of 1682, which referred to Negroes, Moors, Mulattoes, and others born of and in heathenish, idolatrous, pagan, and Mahometan parentage and country, who heretofore and hereafter may be purchased, procured, per, procured and otherwise obtained as slaves. The fact that most of America's first Muslims were also enslaved Africans makes that terrible chapter of our history even darker. Not only were educated men and women hunted and captured in Africa and transported like animals to do harsh labor, they were stripped of their culture, language, and religion. Many enslaved peoples brought to America from Africa were from the predominantly Muslim West African region. Between 1701 and 1800, some half a million Africans arrived in what was going to become the United States. Historians estimate that between 15 and 30% of all enslaved African men and 15% of the enslaved African women were Muslims. According to 21st century researchers Donna and Kevin Jacques, these enslaved Muslims stood out from their counterparts because of their resistance, determination, and education. It's estimated that over 50% of the slaves imported to North America came from areas where Islam was followed by at least a minority population. Thus, no less than 200,000 people came from regions influenced by Islam. Substantial numbers originated from uh, Senegambia, a region with an established Muslim community of inhabitants extending to the 11th century. 
Historian Michael Gomez speculates that Muslim slaves may have accounted for thousands, if not ten thousands of persons. He also suggests that many non-Muslim slaves were acquainted with the tenets of Islam due to Muslim trading and proselytizing activities. Historical records indicate that many enslaved Muslims conversed in the Arabic language. Some even composed literature, autobiographies, and commentaries on the Quran in Arabic. All of this on American soil. How does it change the American story to realize the second or third largest religious group in colonial America were Muslims? And then there are colonial America's Jews. Elias Lagarde was a Sephardic Jew who arrived in James City, Virginia, on the Abigail in 1621. According to Leon Hunter, Lagarde was from Languedoc, France, and was hired to go to the colony to teach people how to grow grapes to make wine. While living in Elizabeth City in 1624, Lagarde was employed by Anthony Bonal, who had been sent to the colony to be a keeper of silkworms for King James I. In 1628, Lagarde leased a hundred acres on the west side of Harris Creek in Elizabeth City. He was joined by Jewish neighbors Joseph Moss and Rebecca Isaac. Not far away, John Levi purchased 2,000 acres of land on the main branch of Powell's Creek, Virginia, in about 1648. Two brothers named Silvedo and Manuel Rodriguez are documented to have been born in Lancaster County, Virginia, around 1650. And none of the Jews in Virginia were forced to leave under any circumstance. In 1740, the English Parliament passed the Plantation Act to regularize and encourage immigration. The law specifically permitted Jews and other nonconformists to be naturalized in their American colonies. By the time of the American Revolution, the Jewish population in America was still small, only about 1,000 to 2,000 people in a colonial population of 2.5 million. But despite their small numbers, how does it change the American story to realize Jews were part of colonial America from the very beginning. I don't have to tell you that we are living in dangerous times. We are living through an ugly political convulsion in our country, a convulsion the kind of which we have experienced before. We are living through a time when immigrants are vilified as if the vast majority of Americans didn't descend from immigrants themselves. We are living through a time when Muslims and Jews are targeted for hate crimes as if Muslims and Jews hadn't been a part of America all along. We are living in times when children are put in cages along our southern border and weary refugees are treated like an invading army to be met 
by our own army. We are living through times when the freedoms of the press are in serious jeopardy and public opinion seems to matter more than facts. We are living through times in which our despotic president rants and raves like a spoiled emperor, a time in which we have only just begun to retake control of our government. We are living in dangerous times. We see the early stages of fascism, and it will take all of us to make sure the most vulnerable among us are not trampled by fascist boots. And make no mistake, Tuesday night was a wonderful night. We made incredible progress as a nation this past election day. More than a hundred women are going to work in the House of Representatives And boy, that will change something, won't it? People of color won big on Tuesday night as black, Hispanic, Native American, and Muslim men and women earned their constituents' votes. Queer politicians and young politicians did well, too. Was it a perfect night? No. Is there still work to do? Yes. Will the madness coming out of the White House stop now? Of course not. I promise you, he is only going to get madder and it's only going to get worse. Fasten your seatbelts. But for now, for this Thanksgiving, you and I get to rest for a moment and be glad. We get to rest for a moment and be glad. We know that we worked hard to get this far and that we will work hard to continue making ours a better, more diverse nation. But rest a moment and be glad. You are not the first Americans to feel threatened. You are not the first Americans to feel disregarded. You are not the first Americans to feel despised. All American minorities in every period of our country's life have felt these things, and they did not let that stop them. We Unitarian Universalists are a religious people. Ours is a religious minority. As a minority religion, we must stand with other people of faith who are not in power. We must stand with Jews and Muslims. We must stand with Native Americans and pagans. We must stand with Hindus and Sikhs and Buddhists. If we think that our white colonial pedigree will save us from persecution, then we have not been paying attention. If a diverse nation enjoyed by people of all races and all religions is our goal, we must be willing to side with people of color at the cost of our own comfort. As Doris and I walked back up that narrow dirt street between a row of rude English cottages at Plymouth Plantation last Sunday, it was incredibly clear to me how our country was founded on fear, fear of the people who were already living here. As the squat fort towered ahead of us, 
It was clear how colonial America was founded on manifest destiny, founded on the expectation that everything white people encountered, they could take. This is a tough founding story to get beyond. And when we can clearly see colonial America's non-Christians as equal founders of our nation, then we will be just a little bit closer to that diverse, welcoming Thanksgiving table at which all of us would like to sit. So be it. Amen.